This is the Wisco Sports Show podcast. This is cool. This is this is what being a podcaster feels like. This is great. My name is Grant Bills. I wanted to do something specific and special for our Edmund Fitzgerald show because I had some thoughts and I had some well, some extra content that really didn't have space within our two-hour radio show that we did on November 10th, which was to commemorate the 47th anniversary of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And it's something we've done the last couple of years, and it's grown little by little. Two years ago, when it first came up on the show, played the song, listened to Gordon Lightfoot, and I essentially just told some stories of Lake Superior, because it's a place I spend a lot of time. I go there every spring, every fall. Sometimes we go there in the winter, and it's just a body of water that fills me with a great sense of awe. Not to sound corny, but I think Lake Superior is our... Grand Teton. It's our Mount Rainier. It's our Everglades. It's our Pacific Coast Highway. It's our thing in the Midwest, specifically in Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. It's our thing that is larger than life. It's something that's bigger than Devil's Lake. It's something that's grander than Granddad's Bluff. Um, And I love being there. And I went back and forth with some listeners. Aaron in Janesville was sending texts in uh, and others who grew up in Duluth, who grew up in Superior, up in that area where... Uh, things like freighters and ports and shipyards mean so much to those communities and have for such a long time in the way that life has been lived up there. And I love history, and it's something that I love talking about on the show, and it's been a really cool way to go back and forth with listeners, and it's been a show uh, and really a chance to just do some storytelling every year at this time that I've looked forward to ever since I've been hosting the Wisco Sports Show. The reason I'm doing the separate podcast is This year, my eyes were a little bit bigger than my stomach, and I reached out to a couple of potential guests thinking, eh, one will get back to me, and I'll just put that in the show. Well, everyone got back to me. (laughs) So I have too much, and I need somewhere to put it because I want to share these conversations with those who are interested and those who want to listen. I started with Bruce Lynn, who's the director at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum in Whitefish Point. They also have, I think, a second branch, and he talks about this in the interview, in Sault Ste. Marie. So if you're over there and you want to check that out, now they're closed for the season, But he shared kind of their off-season things that you can check out and and ways that you can still support and follow the museum. So I asked Bruce about a new shipwreck that they just uncovered in the last couple of weeks. Super cool. He talked about the technology they use and how they finance it and how they work, like everything that goes into finding shipwrecks, because that's a big part of what they do at the museum. Also, the experiences they offer at the museum in Whitefish Point, it's not a sales pitch at all. That's not what this was. He's talking about his passions, the people he works with, and what they're passionate about. Uh, and the attractions that you can come up and experience in a desolate and remote but very beautiful place in Whitefish Point. So that interview didn't have a chance to live on the radio because I ran out of space, I ran out of time, because another guest that I reached out to, Rick Mixter, we had a great interview, and that was the one that ultimately was played live on the Wisco Sports Show, on the radio show on the 10th. Now, Rick is a documentarian, he's an author, he's an explorer, he's dove under 100, or over 100, excuse me, Great Lake shipwrecks, including the Fitz in 1994, and I thought, man, how cool would it be if we could talk to someone who actually has been down there to see the wreck? And we were able to get Rick on the show, and it was awesome, and I know so many listeners enjoyed. So in this podcast, first, you're going to hear that interview with Rick. And if you heard that in the radio show and you want to listen again, great. If you want to skip ahead and listen to the interview with Bruce, you can skip ahead in the podcast, but... I just wanted to share some of my thoughts and not to be corny, a thank you to people who listen and get into this nerdy kind of stuff and enjoy the Wisco Sports Show for, yes, all of the conversations we have about the Packers and the Bucks and the Brewers. And I love that. But a part of the reason why I love radio is there's a little theater of the mind going on. We can, in the course of our daily lives, let our minds wander to some place cooler or to some topic that's cooler while we're driving to and from work or while we're going about our, our normal mundane day. And it's a chance to tell stories. 
and Bruce told some awesome stories and Rick told some awesome stories and I wanted it to live in a separate podcast so we could go back. Maybe you just wanted the shipwreck stuff. Maybe you don't give a damn about the bucks. Hey, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. This is really cool stuff. So first, Rick Mixter, enjoy. And then Bruce Lynn at the end, if you want to skip ahead and hear that interview as well. Thank you for listening. A freighter carrying a crew of 29 disappeared on Lake Superior during a severe storm last night. And so far, no survivors have been found. The freighter, the Edmund Fitzgerald, was transporting iron ore when it ran into high winds and 25-foot waves. Rick Mixter is here. Actually, the first time I ever heard your name, the way you were introduced, you were on 13 on your side, which I think is ABC out of Grand Rapids. And the anchor introduced you by saying, if there was a Mount Rushmore of Michigan maritime historians, Rick Mixter would be on it. And I said, I didn't think I'd ever hear someone in that field described that way, but I loved it. I was like, I want to see if I could track that guy down. I think I cried and called my mother when I heard that <laughs> intro. So yeah, that's a, that's very gracious of them, but there are certainly historians who are much better who deserve a place on that Mount Rushmore than yeah. I do. Yeah, well, that's funny. And being a sports show host, it's a way that I love to like rank people and things. And I was like, I've never heard someone use a Mount Rushmore of Great Lakes researchers, but now that I know that there is one, I, I want to talk to someone who's firmly on there to tell you really briefly about like what I, what I do. So I host the sports show obviously. Mm -hmm. And the great lakes are one of my favorite things. We go up there a couple of times every year and we make a point to it. And Lake Superior is it for me. The West has the mountains, the coasts have the oceans. And there are these things that when you travel and you see them, they take your breath away in the Midwest. To me, that's Lake Superior. And every time I go up there, I I've seen it a dozen times or more. And every time I go up there, it takes my breath away. And honestly, it's in all kinds of different moods too. It goes from being beautiful and crystal clear where, you know, we used to swim in as kids to just really angry and destructive. And um, yeah, it's just as varied as the shorelines that we see with the, the rocky shores and the, the, the beautiful beaches. So yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's the most grandest. It's got the superior name for a reason. Is there a, a thing that you have covered or an individual that you've researched or talked to, or, or what's the one thing throughout your career that is, has taken your breath away the most? And it might not be on Lake Superior, as obviously you've done work on all of them. Oh, and I've been lucky. I dove the Edmund Fitzgerald in a submarine in 1994. So, you know, that it's not at the top because quite honestly, every time I, I visit a shipwreck from the 1940 gale that took down three big freighters um, to see those wrecks, to touch the Novodoc or the Annecy Minch, uh, what's left, or any of the 1913 wrecks too, the Regina, the Price, the Wexford, um, they're slowly finding all of these wrecks now. And each time I make that connection, it's special. So it's hard to put them all in order. I wanted to ask you about the 1913 storm. Because when I started looking into some of your work and watching some of your stuff, it's like, I've never heard about this. I can't fathom what life was like for the, everyone who lived around the lakes and was involved living and working there. What happened during that storm? So I wanted to ask you and, and hear you describe that a little bit. Absolutely. And as you know, as a broadcaster, the most exciting part is to be able to capture those stories actually live from somebody who's been there. And as I started my journey on, in, on researching these shipwrecks, to actually find two survivors from the 1913 storm is unparalleled. I just really didn't think, <clears throat> excuse me, that I'd find um, two guys. One was at the wheel. Ed Kanabi was on the HP Hawgood. And he talked about seeing four of the freighters that were lost on Lake Huron. This is a lake that was just devastated by two different storm systems that came in. And so Kanabi saw the Regina, the Price, the Wexford, the Isaac M. Scott, all on his way up to the thumb where the captain ordered them to turn around. 
and then talked about the mountainous waves trying to tip them over as they did make that journey back. So to hear it through him, I mean, that hair on my arm just stood right up. And then to hear a story of a young man that was going to take just a joyride on a freighter, his his uh, best friend's dad was a captain on the turret cape, and he barely made it through the storm on Superior, sailed through. There was no place to hide in the St. Mary's River or at the Sioux Locks. They had to keep going because of the crowds of vessels that were there. He sailed right into the bottom part of the storm and almost got killed on Lake Huron. So it's just amazing to hear from those guys and to hear how horrible the storm was where it just, you know, was burned into their minds. I was watching one of your lectures the other night and you spoke about one of the captains that was involved. Uh, and it might have been of the Arthur M. Anderson. So we're talking about the 70s, you know, moving forward a couple of decades. But you made a comment about how you don't sail the Great Lakes for a long time without knowing the weather and, and knowing meteorology. What kind of circumstances have to come together for a storm like 1913 or 1940 or even the one that took the fits in the mid-70s? What's incredible is right now in 2022, we're still trying to figure out why these lakes do this during especially the fall system. We know that they heat up the cold lakes of Lake Superior is about 35 degrees at the bottom. During the summertime, we at least get the surface layer that heats up. So during the fall, they try to evaporate as that heat tries to dissipate as the snow comes in. So imagine all that moisture coming up and then you get these Gulf storms with this thick, thick, you know, heavy weather that comes up that's warm colliding with the Arctic fronts out of Canada. And it just creates these weather bombs that just devastate the Great Lakes. So we see these in the 1800s. And, and really, my research started in 1905, because that's when I could reasonably find photographs and the pieces that I need to tell the story visually for a television, you know, and documentaries. So 1905, the big ones, 1913, 1940. And then we go into the, the super freighters, you know, the Fitzgerald, the Morrell and the, and the uh, Carl Bradley. It's funny how in in the Midwest, you know, these storms, they live on like, I, I don't remember exactly the year, but talking to my grandparents, even my parents, because it wasn't that long ago, the great Halloween snowstorm of, you know, whatever year it was. And you hear about it and it's just you don't need to describe it in any more detail than that. People know exactly what you're talking about. And the Armistice Day storm of 1940 is similar. And how does that stack up to obviously the storm of 1913 and a little more recent? Were you able to talk to more people who were involved in that one and, and kind of give us the rundown there? Sure. 1913 came in and it was really significant with 60 mile an hour winds that raged for 16 hours straight. So here's just a continuous storm and then followed by a second storm that caught a lot of captains off guard. They thought the barometer was going back up again, using that meteorology to determine whether or not the storm was over. And they got slammed by another storm. Now going to 1940, where the winds are at now 126 miles an hour. They rage through and destroy a bridge in Tacoma, Washington, and literally shake it to pieces. And it comes up the lake and slams into three different freighters, the Minch, the Davik, and the Novodok. And unfortunately for the Davik, it flips over in deep water. No one survives. The Minch is ripped into two pieces and the decks are completely cleaned off. So there's no place to hide and the grain cargo and the men are all discovered on the beaches, you know, literally north of Muskegon all the way to Pentwater. So it was devastating. And I was lucky enough to find, um, as you mentioned, more people were around, 17 survivors on the Novodok. And I found two of them, the fireman who was in the back of the ship and then the wheelsman who was at the helm. 
And just to hear their accounts of this storm that literally blew the portholes out of the Lansing Shoals Lighthouse and then devastated these freighters, pushed the little tiny Novodoc right on a sandbar. And they were stuck there for two nights where the guys in the back were up to their knees in freezing cold water. You know, think about November 11th, 1940. And the Coast Guard were busy. They were trying to get a car ferry that went aground the city of Flint. Uh, there were two fish tugs that were missing. And uh, it really wasn't the Coast Guard's finest hour because even then the uh, Coast Guard cutter Escanaba was down. It was being refitted for the war that was uh, now starting to take over. And, and unfortunately, they weren't there for the rescues. So it was a bad time um, for people to be on the lakes. And we lost 60 sailors in 1940. Well, and I've heard, you know, and seen in some of your videos with interviews, they just they don't have this fleet of ships on standby for when the weather gets bad to just go sending out. You know, they're talking to, you know, buoy tuggers or, you know, small fishing tugs. It's like, well, can you go out and look? And it's like, man, I, you know, it's not like they have this fleet of Coast Guard ships just at the ready to go out and, and get involved when things get bad. It gives you a true respect. I, I'm very lucky to know I'm a descendant of the lifesaver from Muskegon. Um, he's an actual great grandfather that was there. These are guys that's motto was to, you have to go out, you don't have to come back. They would row in boats, sometimes 20 miles out in the middle of the lake to rescue people and then come back. That was the predecessor to the Coast Guard, which of course now the Coast Guard, they definitely have the technology, these cutters, you know, gleaming cutters that are over 180 feet long in the cases of the, the Sundu. And uh, we see the acacia that went out, the bramble that went out in the, the Daniel J. Morrell storm. Um, of course, the wood rush during the 1975 storm of the Fitzgerald. And now helicopters too, which are, you know, we've got two different bases that can reach out any point on the lakes and use the technology of finding you know ships that may be in distress now we can use epurbs and satellites and radio communication that of course they didn't have in 1940 um they had bits of radio in 1940 but uh, of the ships lost none of them had radio we're talking with rick mixer who's an explorer author diver writer and i want to talk before we're done about some of the works and where we can find some of your stuff i want to talk about the fits but in reading and digging into your work it's like okay there's there's a whole library of history here um and i wanted to ask you about a couple of those other situations with the fits even before it ever went on its final vo voyage and we can talk about the storm and the song and, and all of that you know what blew me away in watching especially some of your videos and some of this footage that you unearthed was the ship being made at the shipyard. Even yeah, looking absolutely. at pictures and, and hearing people talk about it, you can't, I, I didn't grasp how big the ship was. You, you almost have to see it being put together to understand how massive it was. And, and I really lucked out in that footage. I was the first to put footage in a documentary of the Fitzgerald being built. Um, it turns out that because Northwest Mutual had you know built the ship, $8 million price tag, it was an insurance company. They wanted it filmed. They they had, uh, you know, and it was going to be the largest yeah. really freighter ever launched on the Great Lakes in 1958. So I was lucky it was made. It was just unfortunately hidden in a library. It just said 301 GLEW and nobody knew what it was, except yeah. I realized it was great. Lakes Engineering Works, Hall 301, which was Fitzgerald, the, the last of three freighters built in Michigan after a long legacy of building them. So you had to see that footage to see how they built it in subsections, to actually look at the crane and then interview a guy that was on the gantry crane, another guy that was a chipper, another one that was actually drilling the holes 
uh, to put rivets in the very bottom of the Fitzgerald. It really made the story come alive. And to have them even watch the footage, that again makes those connections that you just can't get from a book. For me to see them talk about what it was like to turn around every night and see more freighter up there and building a ship faster than any other ship in Michigan. It was three months faster than they built the William Clay Ford, which was the predecessor, Hull 300 from GLEW. So it, it was interesting to hear their stories uh, in there and, and even some theories that maybe it was the construction that caused the problems. Yeah. And I heard, you know, some conversations you had with those individuals. They wanted to quickly put that to bed. It was like, no, 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 no. We, we put all the time into this. The story that really grabbed me, and I think it was from one of the lectures of yours that I watched, was when they launched it in or they rolled it in or, or whatever the technical term is, right off of the slip and into the water, then the individuals had to go down into the cargo hold and listen for running water. And you see pictures of the Edmund Fitzgerald sitting in the water and you don't realize unless you see it out of the water, how massive it is. And I just imagine someone lowering themselves into a dark, just vast cargo hold underwater essentially. And you're listening like, oh, go make sure it's not leaking. That's pretty wild. Oh, and Ed Domanski says, if you hear running water, you're going to hear running footsteps. I mean, he he said he'd be out of there, but he really did believe that they, you know, they did a good job. And many of those, those welds that they did that were a production weld, a faster weld um, were x-rayed and checked. I mean, they were supposed to be, um, we just see a lot of um, accusations that come out later by the ship keeper, the, the cook, Red Bergner, who talks about, how he saw damage, how when they put the bow thrusters in the front, the keel was loose and they took the, even the, 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 the head guy from uh, the shipping company, Columbia Transportation, through there and pointed it out. And then you can look at the Coast Guard reports and actually go through the paperwork where you see it was repaired and where the hull was loose. And you've got to wonder, you know, did it become loose again? You know, was that part of what they saw? And, and certainly Red Bergner really believed that. You know, it's amazing thinking about how large the ship is and and then trying to ponder and and imagine the conditions that had to, you know, exist to put a ship down that quickly. It's not like it's like you watch Titanic, right? And how it slowly kind of sank into the water. The fits had to break in half and go straight down. And I mean, you've seen the wreck and I want to ask you about it in a minute, but the wreck hit the ground so hard that it bent all of this cold rolled steel you know, can you describe or maybe try to imagine and put us there what the weather was like and what we would have seen and heard on the deck of the ship before it went down? Absolutely. And we're lucky because Captain Cooper was nine miles behind them as they closed the distance when they reported the damage that it had um, vents that were missing. So these are ballast tank vents that are now pouring eight inch holes in the deck, at least two to you know quantify as being uh, several vents that were lost. And all that water coming in, the hatches that the Coast Guard believed were leaking as well. They checked all kinds of ships afterwards and realized that even when they were tightened down, they weren't working as as efficiently as they thought they would. And the damage underneath the water proved that many of those clamps weren't dogged down. And that's not a popular thing as as, we talk about it. But the size of the ship is incredible. When you get down and you look through a porthole in a submarine and the E in Edmund Fitzgerald blots out the size of the porthole, you realize that you're looking at something that's just massive. I've seen big freighters underwater. The Emperor at Isle Royal rivals, you know, it's 500 feet long. There's definitely big freighters down there, but to go in a submarine, see it upright on the bottom and the color is still intact, the name's still there, the damage still there. It's really sobering. You get very excited about seeing the most famous shipwreck on the Great Lakes. 
And then it just becomes sobering where you realize that's a tomb for 29 guys that, you know, never made it off the ship. So it, it's definitely a roller coaster of emotions as you go down and see it. But the size is definitely something you take away. Put us in that sub. You're 500 feet down. It's dark. It's cold. You know, what is the mood like for everyone involved? And what are you guys talking about and saying as you look at this wreck? You're like 500 plus feet down in, in Lake Superior. And again, I'm so lucky because we're in journalism, because we're broadcasters, everything gets recorded. And when I went down, I probably would have forgotten most of it, but I, my book wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't had something recording everything that was said and picking up details even now, almost 30 years since I dove it. Um, it's incredible. We, we started off where, you know, it just got really dark as you pass 200 feet. All of a sudden, the, the light of the sun won't even go through the crystal waters of, of Lake Superior. As you get to 300 feet, now you need sublights. But we left them off till we got near the bottom. And as soon as we got to the moon or the bottom, it looked like a moonscape. It was all this very weird silt and lumpy, you know, soil or, or not soil, but it'd be almost like beach sand that's down there. Um, but very silty. And if you touch down too far, a cloud would come up. And then you could see little tracks where the sculpins and maybe burbot had been down, you know, even 500 feet down. So it's very dark. You kick on the lights and then we were lost for 15 minutes trying to find the shipwreck. When finally we're going forward, I realized I was on the shipwreck. It was buried into a hillside on the bottom and it went right up into where we saw the second and first hatch and a huge rip, a crevasse that's torn into the ship where the spar deck actually tore away from the side of the ship. So it was instant while wow, I'm on the Fitzgerald now. And I think the pilot even said, hey, welcome to the Edmund Fitzgerald. So it, it was exciting. It was sobering to see blankets hanging out of the windows, to look into a porthole and to think, just like every expedition that's been down there, the Coast Guard, I, I have tapes of all the Coast Guard recordings, and they all felt, you know, is there people going to be looking back at me? You know, I mean, what's that going to be like? Um, and it, it was more just because the 29 guys had vanished in the modern day, 1975. How was it possible that every one of those bodies were, were hidden somewhere, um, we thought, in the wreck? But, of course, the dive right after mine, we found a human figure on the bottom. It was uh, just very, very sobering for us to know that, that this is a grave site and that uh, finally one of those sailors had been found. Last thing, uh, one of my, my favorite people that was interviewed and, and the favorite things that I saw. And I think he was in your Edmund Fitzgerald investigations. And then it was referenced in um, something else that I read and maybe a lecture that I watched was Captain Hobov, the Woodrush, telling oh, yeah. stories about what it was like to go back. And if I remember correctly, he went back. I don't know if it was a couple of weeks or a couple of months, you know, after it had went down and, and they went to go try to try to find it or to explore it or whatever. And they hit some really bad uh, weather. And he said, like, the lake was angry, like as if this was my wreck, you're not going to touch it. And the anecdote that I, you know, that made me really go, wow, was some of the buoys that they had, he estimated that they were pulled underwater as far as 200 feet and just crushed. And I was like, okay, so even removed from that storm that took the original boat down, you know, going back and, and being at that site all of these years later, it's still just a really harsh environment. Oh, and Hobaugh, you know, he had more time over the wreck than anybody. He was the ship that came out to search for the Fitzgerald. He was there when the P3 Orions found the ship and marked it with a buoy. 
they lost it again. And another P3 had to come back in. And um, so he came back out six months later. And that's when that storm greeted them and again, crushed the buoys that were on their target so that they could use the ship. They were going to use them to moor and pull the ship around to explore with the robot underwater. So yeah, it is it, to hear these different personalities has been the thrill for me. My my findings in three different documentaries now, a CD-ROM on the Fitzgerald, and now my brand new book. I, I literally, it's not my observations other than my my sub ride. It's the the joy of sharing the people who've actually been there, that built the ship, that sailed the ship, that you know looked for survivors, that. Um, quite honestly, we're right behind the Fitzgerald. You know, those things are all very interesting to me. And to be able to bring that to people is a real thrill for me so that they can come up with their own conclusion. Yeah. So tell us about the new book that is is brand new. You said you were just getting some copies. And then what do you want to do next? What are you working on or, or what's your goal for what um, comes next for Rick Mix? Well, the, the new book is right here. It just, just arrived. In fact, you've got a scoop because it just arrived uh, last week. And I haven't talked about it at all. Tattletale Sounds. I took the name right from Gordon Lightfoot, who's our patron saint of uh, all things maritime. Um, the wind and the, the rails made a tattletale sound. It just really fit for a book that goes behind the scenes and really tattles on each of the expeditions. I don't talk a lot, a lot about the crew. I, I think because it's already been done so well with all the other books, Hemming's book um, and Schumacher's book are fantastic reads on who those men were. Mine would be more into the key people, the, the captain, the, the first mate, you know, who watched the loading of the ship, the engineer. But then I go more into detail with Jean-Michel Cousteau and all the people who've been involved that have dove the wreck. So it, it's real significant for me. And maybe my last chapter, I, I've done so much on it now that I, I I do think that there's other stories I need to do. I've got my podcast at shipwreckpodcast.com and I want to put together the Nordmere story, which is a fantastic story that that really dovetails in with the Daniel J. Morrell, a big storm in 1966. I was lucky to know the survivor from the when the Morrell went down. In the Nordmere, I actually found the pilot that rescued those men. So to get those interviews together, to tell a story that I think people would very much enjoy, but I just need the time to do it. And I think now that the book's done, I can do it. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to reading and I want to pass that info along to all my listeners. And it's something we're definitely going to talk about. Rick, I appreciate the time. I really wanted to track you down and I was hoping you'd be willing to chat for a couple of minutes and it was everything I hoped for. Thank you so much. Oh, you bet. So hopefully we'll do it again. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? We're talking with Bruce Lynn, who is the executive director of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum, which is up in Whitefish Point. I thought you were in Sault Ste. Marie, uh, which I, up until not that long ago, embarrassingly called Salt St. Marie. Is that something you hear a lot? I'm sure that I'm not the only one to make that mistake. You're definitely not the only one. We hear that a lot. Um, and you know, you were actually right, uh, at least on our location. So we our main site is located at Whitefish Point, but we actually have a small museum located in Sault Ste. Marie as well. Yeah. And then we have in Wisconsin, we have Whitefish Bay. And then I start getting confused about exactly where the line is between Wisconsin and Michigan and the UP and downstate. So it's all um, I get twisted around a little bit up there. So you're the director of the museum and I see you guys. Let's just start with what's new. You guys discovered a new ship. I, I think me and other people who might be listening to this don't quite grasp how many ships are in these lakes. So I I'm sure this isn't anything 
you know, too uncommon. You guys are finding shipwrecks all the time, but this one seems pretty large, 120 years after it sank. Yeah. You know, when we released that press release, it was to the day as well. And it's uh, it's a pretty unusual ship. But I, I will say this, Grant, we 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 released it, obviously, to the media um, when we did partly because we had just positively identified it this summer. So we found a number of shipwrecks last summer, 2021. We actually found nine and probably another 17, maybe even 20 targets that could be uh, other shipwrecks. So what ends up happening is we have a research vessel. We have a sonar that we tow uh, built by a company called Marine Sonic Technology um, out on the East Coast. And what it allows us to do is get an image on the bottom of the lake. And if there's something there that seems a little, seems to stand out, maybe casts a shadow, uh, we go back and we have an ROV, uh, remotely operated vehicle. It's like a, a robot. It's got high intensity lighting. It's got high definition cameras. And because some of these wrecks, I'll give you an example. We found one called the SR Kirby uh, off the Keweenaw Peninsula um, back in 20, uh, 2018. And that one was in over 800 feet of water. So no one's going to go diving, you know, to that depth. So that that little ROV allows us to yeah. to get a better look at the shipwreck on the bottom of the lake. And that's exactly what we did with Barge 129. And that really an unusual ship um, being a whale back. And, and that was pretty exciting to announce that. Well, I'm looking at the picture in your press release right now. Can you tell us a little bit about the ship? Because obviously we have the big freighters and then you have... Was it a schooner ship? Some of the older ones are exactly what they're called and all these different types of ships. This one, I don't know if I've ever seen a ship that looks quite like this one, Barge 129. Yeah, you know, there were about 44 of them built. And uh, I I believe, and I'd have to go back and look to make sure, but I think most of them were built around Duluth Superior. Um, as a matter of fact, the last one in existence is called the Meteor. You're, you might be familiar with that. It's out there in Superior, Wisconsin. But but they were called whalebacks. They were called pig boats. They they weren't they weren't the prettiest ships in the world. They they almost looked like a submarine, you know, on the surface of the yeah. water. And they were designed by a uh, gentleman by the name of Alexander McDougall. I believe he was a Scottish immigrant. Um, but they designed or his design or the whole idea was that these ships could allow the water to just kind of shed right off of the hull. And maybe they might be a little more seaworthy in that respect. But Barge 129 fell into a little bit of trouble. Obviously, it sank, but it, it got into trouble like so many other shipwrecks that we've looked at over the years in that it was a barge. It was being towed by a steamship called the Mauna Loa, uh, and they were uh, you know, passing off of uh, what we call the shipwreck coast today on their way to Whitefish Point. They were downbound. They were loaded with iron ore. And... Uh, like hap has happened with so many of these ships that, that barge that was being towed, in this case, barge 129, snapped its tow line. And the Mauna Loa, uh, they had a decision to make, and the captain of the Mauna Loa had a very important decision to make. You know, what, what do we do here? Do we go back and, and rescue this vessel? The conditions were terrible. Um, and they did make that choice to turn around and go back and try to re-hook up that tow line. So it took them about an hour to make this maneuver. And uh, they went around to the north and uh, came around from the west, came, basically circled back around the, the barge 129, tried to get that line hooked back up. But the waves actually smashed the two vessels together. And the port side anchor on the Mauna Loa actually smashed in some of the hull plating on barge 129. And at that point, everybody knew, OK, this is a new ball game at this point, And we have got to do something. The Mauna Loa was drifting off a little bit, and the crew on Barge 129 were 
very lucky. They were able to get into their lifeboat, pulled on those oars, probably for literally for dear life, uh, and got over to the Mauna Loa. And at that point, the crew on the Mauna Loa pulled them on board. But, you know, pretty dr dramatic situation. And a few minutes later, the barge 129 went right to the bottom. And, uh, and that's, that's the story. It's amazing how fast some of these massive ships go down and go down all the way through hundreds of feet of water. There are these huge boats that are, and you look at pictures of especially the bigger freighters, right? They're massive. And some of the pictures of them in the water don't quite do them justice because a lot of it is under the surface and you can't really tell. But so many of these ships that went down, they sank within, you know, a couple blinks of an eye and all of a sudden they're hundreds of feet down. That's got to be an interesting part of what you guys do Searching for shipwrecks in different places, and the depths can vary so much. Like the Fitz is, what, like 530 feet down, Barge 129, right here in your press release, and we're talking about a 650 feet of water. How is that something you navigate? Because the process for finding a ship in 60 feet of water versus 600 has to be very different, right? You know, it is. And there's a lot of shipwrecks that we have, uh, the organization has located over the years, that some of them are very shallow. Some might be in a dozen feet of water. Um, and then you might have something... Uh, you know, like the Kirby I mentioned a little bit earlier, that's in over 800 feet of water. So we we have areas, and if I'm I'm not sure if I'm answering your question exactly as you asked it, but we have areas that we will look at that we want to tow that sonar uh, and see what is on the bottom. So you set up a grid and um, you tow that. It basically looks like a big torpedo, and it's the sonar tow fish, and then those sound waves emanate from that towfish, and then that's what allows us to see the bottom of the lake. But, um, but you know, the, the lake bottom and Lake Superior is specifically, uh, you know, I shouldn't say specifically, it's not always, but most of the time that's where we're searching. And we did find that kind of target rich environment, but that, that bottom undulates on the lake there, you know, the depth can go up and down and things like that. And so you, you might come across something that's really deep. You might come across something that's relatively shallow, maybe 100 feet, um, you know, so on and so forth. But, uh, yeah, the, I mean, the stories behind these wrecks, to me, are the most fascinating part. And what often ends up happening is we will be the first human eyes to see. And using the example of Barge 129, we were the first human eyes in 120 years to look at that ship and, uh, and see the condition it was in on the bottom of the lake. And that's just we're pretty fortunate to be doing this kind of work. We're talking with Bruce Lynn, who is the director at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum up in Whitefish Point. You say you're pretty lucky to be doing this type of work. It sounds really, really cool. I know that's like a really basic way to say that. It seems like a, a pretty cool way to, to spend your nine to five. I'm curious about you specifically and what you do at the museum. How are you spending your days? Like, what's your day to day like? You're obviously out on the water, maybe not you specifically, but you have people involved with your organization out on the water searching. Kind of what is your day-to-day -day like other than talking to people like me who want to ask you dumb questions? No, not dumb questions. And this is this is fun. I enjoy this. Um, so my job, like any small museum, you know, anybody who's managing a, a museum like this, there's you're wearing a lot of hats. So uh, depending on the time of year, so we're about to close. We're a seasonal business. Uh, we close on October the 31st. And then we go from a staff of over 30 to about three of us, basically. Uh, and, and that allows us in the off season, you know, I'm doing hiring, um, you know, we're building exhibits, we're doing archival work. Um, you know, our director of marine operations, a gentleman by the name of Daryl Ertel, is doing research to kind of plot out where we're going to be searching the next year. So I'm in communications with him. Um, you know, we're building budgets, we're making sure the bills are paid. 
when we get into the summer, that's when we start operating. So we're opening up the buildings, you know, where Whitefish Point is a national historic site. So there's a, a lighthouse uh, there that was built when Abraham Lincoln was president. You yeah. know, that's pretty cool, but it's also a lot of preservation work. Uh, we work with the State Historic Preservation Office here in the state of Michigan to make sure that we're doing this work in a way that they approve of. Um, we have a number of historic structures and the main focuses of the history that we have at Whitefish Point, and we actually have a couple of other historic sites as well, but at Whitefish Point as the example, uh, we represent that lighthouse history. We obviously represent the shipwreck history. And then we also, which many people are not familiar with, we tell the stories of the life-saving service on the Great Lakes. And this was for your listeners that may or may not be familiar. And there's a lot of people that have never heard of the life-saving service. It was a government entity that if you if you want to use the example of the lighthouse service, the lighthouses were there to guide the shipping and hopefully prevent shipwrecks. But if a ship were to get into trouble, the life-saving service actually had crews uh, that would be at times, not always, but at times in very remote locations like where we are at Whitefish Point and going west. Uh, to be clear, we never had a life-saving station at Whitefish Point. We had a Coast Guard lifeboat station, similar idea, similar history, just different era. Uh, but the life-saving stations to the west of us had to respond to all kinds of uh, calls of distress, ships sinking, uh, ships running aground, uh, ships just generally getting into trouble. They had small boats, then later on they had motorized boats, but they would go out in the worst conditions to try to rescue a crew off of a ship. So where your lighthouse keeper, you know, batten down the hatches and make sure you're in that lighthouse and make sure that light is lit and operating, uh, your life-saving service crew had to go out and their motto was, uh, we had to, go, you know, you have to go out, but nothing says you had to come back, meaning they put their lives on the line and, and there were cases where whole crews were lost amidst a rescue. So, so the stories we talk about and the stories that we interpret, the history that we interpret at Whitefish Point as an example, it's really interesting history. And it's life and death situations. It's people living in remote locations. Um, and I think really everybody at the museum takes that all very seriously. And, uh, and I'll say it again, I'm fortunate to be in the middle of all this. And, and I really am in the middle of all of this. There's a lot of different directions and a lot of moving parts, but, um, but it's an exciting place to be. For those people who, who live where I do in the state of Wisconsin, and maybe it's in Madison or Eau Claire, and maybe it is a, a bigger city. I live in La Crosse. That's about, you know, 50, 60,000 people. You know, we like to go up to Lake Superior, especially the the coast of Wisconsin in between Superior and before it turns into the UP, obviously. And you go up there and there's Ashland and, and there's Iron River and there's some towns. But for the most part, it's just nothing. There's just not a lot. There's small cabins where people come up because they like to go out to the lake or they like to fish the small rivers that come in and out of the lake. But there's nothing. And when I was talking with Rick Mixter about some of these things as well, I think something that that really spoke to me and you can speak to this for sure as well, that when a ship got into trouble out there, it's not like there was a huge city on the coast full of boats and people ready to just go out there. You're kind of on the edge of the world. That's what it feels like when I go up there and you're obviously way farther north than I've ever been. I think it's it's pretty crazy to think people were out there not risking life and limb, but they were in very treacherous conditions, knowing that there wasn't really a whole lot of people around if something went wrong. It's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, it was a dangerous career field. I mean, it can be dangerous now, um, but back then it was very dangerous. And, you know, there's a couple shipwrecks that we're doing uh, some research on and doing a story on. They were called the Jupiter and the Saturn. And there was a massive storm 
uh, November of 1872 that swept Lake Superior and uh, four ships. And I have to think about this. It might have been five. I know. I know if it wasn't five, it was nearly five ships that that sank, and uh, two, three of them, uh, three of the four, no survivors, uh, and then the other one had three survivors you know, out of a crew of say 10, uh, you know, you knew when you were going out during certain times of the year and it wasn't just isolated to the fall months, you could go out in May. Um, and there's a ship called the Nelson that we discovered in back in 2014, it was a May shipwreck. Uh, it was a barkentine, basically a square rig schooner, uh, got into trouble, um, in the vicinity of Grand Marais, Michigan, and uh, went down. It only had one survivor. It was the uh, captain. His wife and child were on board. I mean, just tragic situations. But I think, especially in the, the fall months and closing in in winter, it was a very, very dangerous job. And as you pointed out, I think they knew that they didn't have a safety net in most cases um, until these life-saving stations come along. But there was still, there, until they came along, there was still no guarantee that the crew of that life-saving station would actually somehow know that they were out there in trouble or see them out in trouble. So it's very, very dangerous work. And a lot of these ships got into trouble, no question. I'm looking at the Google Maps, because I love looking at Google Maps, of where you're positioned, way out on Whitefish Point. And there's a couple of things that I would love to check out. There's some wildlife preserves, obviously lighthouses. Like you said, there is what is called a bird observatory very close to where you are, which I'm a big bird watching guy. So that's right up my alley. I would imagine a lot of people make it up your way to see your museum and especially see some of the the stories and the pieces that you guys have regarding the Edmund Fitzgerald, which obviously is on everyone's mind this time of year. What do you guys do at the Great Lake Shipwreck Museum and, and what do you offer for people who want to come up and obviously learn about everything that's going on up there in the whole lake, but especially that shipwreck in particular? Certainly, that's a good question. So when, when a visitor comes up to Whitefish Point, as you were saying, there's a bird observatory there, there's nature trails, there's there's the beach. It's a beautiful location. Yeah. Uh, and of course, again, it's a National Historic Site. So you've got this massive lighthouse that's kind of standing over everything. Uh, but if someone is coming specifically to visit the museum, you know, the first thing they do is, you know, they go to the main gallery and we have um, you know, 13 shipwrecks represented in that gallery. Uh, one going back as far as 1816, a ship called the Invincible. You know, I always joke that there's probably a lesson in there. You don't yeah. name your ship Invincible because <laughs> you're guaranteed going to get into trouble. Yep. Uh, but this is a vessel that sailed right through the War of 1812 schooner and uh, just to sink off of Whitefish Point in November of 1816. That's, that's the first one. But we also tell some of the story of the you know, the first European explorers coming through and the fur trade, you know, those were really the first commercial vessels, those 30-foot Montreal canoes. But we go from 1816 all the way forward to 1975, and you've got a lot of wrecks represented in between. You know, there's theoretically over 6,000 shipwrecks on the Great Lakes, so we can't tell all of those stories. But what we like to do is tell some of the stories, you know, of the uh, – the shipwrecks that we have located as an organization because we do actively search for and document these shipwrecks. Uh, the Fitzgerald, we did not find. Um, and there's two other wrecks in that main gallery that we did not locate either, but we still have represented. Uh, the Daniel J. Morrell is a, a November 1966 shipwreck on Lake Huron, and then November 1958, Carl D. Bradley in Lake Michigan. Those are the ones we didn't discover, but they're obviously huge stories of, uh, you know, at least the Morell and the Bradley, these are stories of shipwreck and survival. 
you know, so we tell those stories. Uh, so you, you have that opportunity to go through the main gallery. We have a massive Fresnel lens that's inside that gallery. Those are the lenses, the, uh, lenses that were uh, up inside the, the lighthouses back in the day. There's used in some lighthouses these days, but not many more. But, but the other thing we have is, which is truly the centerpiece of the museum is the bell from the Edmund Fitzgerald. So, and in that main gallery, we do a memorial ceremony. It's primarily for the Fitzgerald family members. Uh, we do it in that main gallery. We've really kind of, since the pandemic, have closed that down a little bit. It was getting really kind of crazy. We would have so many people trying to come to this memorial ceremony. Um, and we love having the people come, but it was getting really difficult for the family members in some yeah. respects, um, you know, to have more of a, I guess, an intimate memorial service or ceremony, if I could put it that way. But, but through that gallery, you learn about the shipwrecks. And then after that, we have a restored 1923 motor lifeboat house from the Coast Guard lifeboat station that was up there at Whitefish Point. We have a video that we show. Uh, that talks about the recovery of the bell from the Fitzgerald and how it came to be at the Shipwreck Museum. And then we have a, a lighthouse keeper's quarters. You can learn what it was like to be a lighthouse keeper at Whitefish Point in the 1920s. Uh, we have a what we call the Navy radio building. The United States Navy in the 1920s had a radio compass station there. We have a, a new exhibit there that we just opened up late last year dedicated to the Daniel J. Morrell, going into a little more detail on that wreck. And then we currently have an exhibit that uh, details the documentation of shipwrecks when we find them. And then uh, after that, we have a uh, surf boathouse. We talk more about the life-saving service there. So, so Grant, to answer your question in a very long-winded fashion, there's there's a lot to see there. Um, we have a museum store, which is seemingly very popular, more popular than ever uh, yeah. these days, it seems like, or at least it was this summer. Um, but when people come up, there's there's a variety of things for them to do. And if they even have even just a slight interest in this maritime history that surrounds us and that is so much a part of the culture in this area, there's just really a lot to learn. And I find that people often come away, uh, you know, saying things like, wow, I had no idea, you know, about these shipwrecks or I had no idea about the life-saving service and the, yeah. the dramatic rescues that they performed and, you know, that kind of thing. So. Bruce, personally, do you have a, a favorite spot on any, any of the Great Lakes that you've been? Maybe it's a maybe it's a natural formation. Maybe it's a reef. Maybe it's a lighthouse or a shipwreck. Do you have a favorite lake or a favorite spot on one of the lakes that you've encountered over the years? You know, I'd say that I have a, a, a number of them and Whitefish Point was always one. So it's it's, you know. <laughs> what can I say? I work at a place that I love. Um, yeah. But, you know, your Apostle Islands out there, um, you know, those are lovely. Uh, I did a uh, program a number of years ago about a lighthouse keeper that was out on Raspberry Island. And I found that whole area to be just gorgeous. Uh, it, it, it actually, it's an interesting story. And I'll make it super brief here. But uh, I was doing research in a library at U of M and came across a, uh, a diary of a, a keeper by the name of, I, I'm, I'm assuming it was pronounced Jacker, J-A-C-K-E-R, but he was German and he was out there on Raspberry Island. And it was interesting to read that diary because the man pretty much, it was like you had a window to his life. Uh, and so it was interesting to read that and then go out to Raspberry Island and go to Madeline Island and go to those places. Um, you know, Lake Superior is, is, I think, my favorite among the Great Lakes, but Mackinac Island holds a very, uh, you know, uh, very important place in my heart too. Um, I just think it's a gorgeous place. I think a lot of people sometimes miss the true beauty of that island because I think sometimes they they get hung up downtown 
not that there's anything wrong with downtown, but the true beauty of the island, I think, is once you get beyond the downtown area, you can see uh, Mackinac Island State Park and things like that. So I think there's a, a ton of gorgeous places on the Great Lakes. And I think the cool thing about it is so many of them, if you walk from Whitefish Point as an example and go west, uh, there's another favorite place of mine, a place called Vermilion. It's where one of the original life-saving stations were located. You can walk on that beach for hours and you're not going to, you know, well, I shouldn't say you're not going to see anybody. Um, I think you see tend to see more people these days because I think people are trying to find these places to get away from it all, yeah. get away from maybe uh, a lot groups of people, especially since the pandemic. But uh, it's just a stunning area, and sometimes you can go out there this time of the year. There's not a soul out there, and uh, you could just kind of feel all that history and the natural beauty all around. So um, it's a, it's a hard question to answer, Grant. Uh, but there's there's a lot of my favorite places, I guess I could say. No, I got you, and I, I appreciate that. I'm partial to Lake Superior as well. I've been to Milwaukee. I spent time in Green Bay, you know, so we're right there with Lake Michigan or Chicago. But Superior definitely has a different feel, but that's cool. You know, and, and growing up in whether it be Wisconsin or Minnesota, you're used to bodies of water everywhere, and they're all supposed to have a, a different personality and, and different things that define them. Before I let you go, Bruce, you're at the Great Lake Shipwreck Museum. You are now closed for the season, and you will be, so we're all planning our trip for next summer, but in the meantime, is is there a way that, I, I don't know if support is the right word, is there a way that we can still enjoy your museum uh, and support what you guys do while we wait for you to open next year? So here's what I'd say. First, we are we actually are open until the end of the month. So we've got a couple more days. So if anybody wants to try to fit in that last trip, yeah. we would love to see more visitors because this time of the year, it's really slow. Um, you, if you come in the summer, you could, we have days where we'll have over a thousand people coming through in a day. And that's a busy day. This time of the year, it's more like 50 people. So if you want to come and really, you know, enjoy it, um, you know, this is a great time of year to do it. The staff are just ready to talk to people because sure. there's hardly anybody coming through. So, but as far as support and, and, you know, staying abreast or on top of what's happening at the museum, um, you know, what I would always recommend is keep an eye on our website. It's shipwreckmuseum.com, shipwreckmuseum.com. So we, anything that's new that's coming up, be it uh, a new exhibit, be it, uh, you know, as an example, a building that's being restored and we're just going to be opening it up or even we're doing some landscaping to make it more historically accurate. That's going to be starting in the spring and we're kind of reworking some of our parking lots and things like that. That may not be super exciting, but it'll tell you when's it, when is a good time to maybe visit or maybe is there a better time to visit. So keep an eye on our website, um, you know, follow us on social media uh, between Instagram, Facebook, um, you know, Twitter, not so much, but we do have a number of platforms and social media. You can stay ahead of what's going on. Uh, I'll do a number of programs in the off season uh, where I'll be at different libraries, museums, places like that that aren't seasonal. So key, again, that stuff will show up on the website or in social media. Um, and then if you're really interested in supporting, and, and we are a 501c3 private nonprofit, uh, if people that support, we do have an annual appeal and in the summer appeal, you could pick if you really think that that is cool and we do the marine operations and we're looking for these shipwrecks and documenting them, you could donate to that. Um, you know, it's not inexpensive to do these things or the preservation of the buildings. Let's yeah. say you're a big lighthouse fanatic and you think that Whitefish Point is the coolest lighthouse in the Great Lakes, which it is. Yeah. Uh, you could, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm obviously a little partial here, but uh, you know, you can donate to the preservation of that 
lighthouse as well. So, and there's other things coming up. We are taking the responsibility, and I'm not going to release it yet because we're still working on details. But we're actually going to be taking um, the responsibility for the preservation of another lighthouse uh, on Lake Superior, and we're we're not again announcing that yet. But keep an eye on our website, and once we have all the details sorted out, we'll make that public too. So, so there's a lot going on. Keep yeah. an eye on that website, and you'll be able to stay on top of all of it. And for those who might have more questions, um, all the contact info is on there for the museum and for the office and all the links to the socials and everything is on the website, uh, including some really cool videos and and just lots of content about what they do. Bruce, I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for spending some time with me and telling us about what you do and answering some of my random questions and, and being a part of the show. Thank you. Thank you, Grant. I, I enjoyed it. And uh, don't hesitate to... Uh touch base with us again, and especially with all these other new things going on. So I appreciate the opportunity.